If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 1. Text for this morning will actually be primarily one verse. Matthew 1, 21. Verse we know well. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Precious truth to us today. One of the really wonderful things, even just about being a person, being a human being, is having a name. Do you like your name? Some people might say they like their name. Some people might not. Some folks go by their middle names. There are uh, some folks that I know that really just didn't like their given name, so they went by their middle name. Unless, maybe that's a little bit of a strange thing to say, one of the nice things about being a person. If you've ever read some of these, you know, dystopian novels or anything like that, where every citizen is assigned a number. They're barely distinguishable. Something you don't really choose. Nobody chooses for you. You're just assigned. It's like a license plate. It's kind of impersonal. There's nothing really distinct about it. It seems that giving names is part of God's image in us, something God himself did from the very beginning, which seems he gave mankind to do as his image bearers. Of course, when you start at the very beginning, the first man, when they're created, let us make man in our image. What does he call man? Adam means of the ground. It's very appropriate, right? He was made out of the dust, and to the dust he would return. And Adam, it seems, when he gets and meets his wife, some people think he even sang, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called Eve. The, the life giver, because she is the mother of all the living. And this really bears out throughout Scripture. If you think of ones like Jacob's sons and how their mothers named them, Leah and Rachel and their handmaids, their names are full of meaning, both for the child, for the parent, Levi. What was said about him, now this, this time my husband will become attached to me. That's Levi, attached Judah is born. This time I will praise the Lord, is what Leah said after her fourth son, Judah. God has vindicated me, they said at another time. Dan, vindication, judgment. How fortunate when Gad was born. That's what Gad is. May the Lord give me another son. That's why she named him Joseph. What do you think she wanted, Rachel? She wanted another son. I'm going to name him Joseph because I want another one. Jacob, their father, of course, is the heel grabber. And he was a deceiver, a a conniver his whole life. Maybe you think even of God changing his name to Israel, the one who strove with God. That's what that name is. God's names, too, are packed with significance. They reveal his character, his nature, his activity in the world. El Shaddai, God Almighty. He can do anything. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Does that give you hope? God even provided a ram in the place of Isaac. God will provide himself a sacrifice. Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Rophe, the Lord who heals. He could even heal bitter water, enough water for an entire nation, maybe a million people in the desert. The Lord who heals. This is some of the the insight we get into God's nature by his name. One of the really interesting things about the arrival of God on earth as a human baby 
is the study of the names surrounding his appearance. A child who was wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace, King of the Jews, Emmanuel, Messiah, Christ, Lord. And then, of course, his human name. What is it? Jesus. Joshua. Yeshua, maybe. Yesu, Jesus. There's a lot of Jesuses around the world today by that name. It's a very common name in that day. Someone estimated, maybe even Scripture bears eye, I don't recall the exact number, something like seven out of ten Jewish high priests in the first century were named Joshua. It's just a common Jewish name. It's a good, strong Jewish name. Like you might think of a, a Ronald or a Reagan in our country. Someone named that. It's just a strong American name, a Jackson, a George. This is Jesus. It's a good Jewish name. Let's read our text this morning and see what the Lord has for us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. <clears throat> when his mother Mary had been betrothed to, jo- to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, the angel said, for he, you may have in the margin, he himself will save his people from their sins. You see that Joseph heard from the angel that he would do the naming. Joseph would do the naming. The name was chosen, but Joseph, you could say, had the privilege of obeying and cooperating with the will of God in this significant moment. It was a very common name, but a very appropriate name. If you think of Joshua in the Old Testament, like we might name a child, like I mentioned, after a famous president, this is a good, strong name. Joshua is a deliverer. And the people were looking for this. The Jews were looking for Jesus. What is Jesus? Yahweh saves. God saves. God will rescue. Name him Jesus for he will rescue his people from their sins. The Jews wanted this. They wanted saved. They wanted rescued from Rome. They wanted God to rule over them. They wanted peace. They probably thought of Solomon and and the golden age of their history. This is what God promised to them. This is what they were looking for. This is what they wanted in the Messiah. And you see in chapter 1, the very first verse, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. This is his genesis. You could say is the word. And then verse 18, 
Now the genesis of Jesus Christ, that's the same word, or a very similar word. This is who it is. This is his birth. This is his family in chapter 1. But then in chapter 2, it's all the names of these places. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and Bethlehem, and Jerusalem, and Egypt, and Nazareth, it gives us the who of who it is. And then the where is he's from. It's almost a little snapshot of his biography, you could say. And the theme really here in this verse is, and for the sermon, is the suitability of this name given to the virgin-born child. I want us to see how appropriate this name is for the Son of God to see that the child that Joseph named was God's salvation for the world. So in the opening 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, you see Jesus' lineage from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, the deportation in 586, from the deportation down to the present day, to Joseph. It's Jesus' lineage. He's the son of David. He's the rightful heir of the throne. He's the son of Abraham, the one who was to be the fulfillment of all the promises to the Jews. And then in verses 18 and 19, Joseph makes this discovery that's alarming to him. His wife, who was a virgin, or so he thought, is with child. But then God intervenes in verses 20 through 23 by sending an angel to tell him, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. This is from the Holy Spirit. You shall name him Jesus. And then in the last two verses, verses 24 and 25, you see Joseph's character. He obeys God. He does everything that the angel says. He wakes from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, He took Mary as his wife, kept her a virgin until she gave birth, and he called his name Jesus, just like the angel told him to. And in our verse, in our text for this morning, you shall call his name Jesus, for he himself will save his people from their sins. You see see the action and the reason. Joseph's participation in the will of God, you will name him Jesus. Why? What's the reason? It's really God's wisdom in the name of his son for he will save his people from their sins. This name really is fitting for a number of reasons, four reasons this morning. The name Jesus is fitting for the God-man because first you see in this name that he is the provider of salvation. The angel said he himself. The Greek construction really allows for this reading. There's an emphasis placed on him. He's the one who's going to do it. And we'll get to that. Who is this one that the angel announced would save his people? He's a man. From the the genealogy, we see that he's the son of Abraham. There was a promise to Abraham that his descendants would bless all the nations of the earth. God said to Abraham, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven in Genesis 26 and will give your descendants all these lands. That's a very specific land-bound promise, people, number promise, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And you see this bearing out in the Old Testament. But then in Jesus Christ it comes to full fruit. He's a Jew. He's a blessing to the whole earth. He's a son of Abraham. But he's also a man in that he's a son of David. And there was a promise to David too. He would have 
a son who would be a king forever. Second Samuel 7, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make a house for you, is what David was told. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish, establish the throne of his kingdom forever, was the promise to David. This man, Jesus, is the rightful heir, and he is a reigning king. But even all the way down to these obscure Jews, Joseph and Mary, we see also the promise that he would be a human like us. What did God say to the Jews or to Israel as they were about to go back into the promised land? In Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. And you shall listen to him. Jesus is a prophet. He has authority, which perhaps was unremarkable. The Jews would have expected the Messiah to be a human. What was really controversial to them was when that human started claiming to be God. But it's clear. He's a man. The provider of salvation. This baby is clearly a man. A human with a true human nature. But he himself is not just a man. He's also God, isn't he? He's the Son of God. When the angel announced to Mary that she would have this child in Luke chapter 1, Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. He's the Son of God. And of course, in our text, a few verses later, in Matthew 1.23, we see that He is God with men. He is Emmanuel. Not only God's Son, but He's with us in the flesh. But really, at the heart of this declaration from the angel, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we see that this man, who is God, He is, in fact, Yahweh. That's what we're saying when we're calling him God. He is Yahweh. Call him Jesus. Call him, name him Yahweh will save because he will save, is what the angel is saying. You see that? That means he is Yahweh. That's a declaration of the incarnation of God, God becoming man. This baby is God. It's a a proclamation about God's character. He is a savior. He is a rescuer, God is. The baby Jesus is, in fact, Yahweh. It's always been Yahweh who is the Redeemer. Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8 say, O Israel, hope in the Lord, capitals, hope in Yahweh. For with the Lord, Yahweh, there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Who will do it? Hope in the Lord. Hope in Yahweh. Name him Jesus because he will do it. This one is Yahweh, the angel says. And Jesus' name is is full of significance all throughout his life, all throughout the Gospels. Not here just at his birth and the announcement of it. 
you turn to Luke chapter 24, the end of Luke's gospel, you could say this is the, the great commission in Luke, part of it at least. We're familiar with the one in Matthew, maybe the one in Acts very well. Luke chapter 24 and verse 45 Jesus opens the minds of his disciples to understand the scriptures. Verse 46, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Maybe this rings a bell for you. What what was part of the controversy earlier, even in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 5? Only God can forgive sins. Who is this man to say, your sins are forgiven? Only God can do that. And Jesus said, so you know I have the authority to do this. And he turned and looked at the man and said, rise up, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus does have authority to forgive sins because Yahweh saves. He is God. Some see in John chapter 7 when it says Jesus was there on the great day of the feast. John chapter 7 verse 37. Some study the, the, the history of this feast and the feasts in Israel at this time. And the people would have had this big festival. And I, I, I don't, we don't really have the time to paint the whole picture, but it's really striking to see the, the kinds of things that they do, even now celebrating the, the Festival of Lights and the Feast of Tabernacles and things. When they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, God, please save, is what it says in Psalm 119. Hosanna is what that means. Lord, save. And Jesus is saying, Joshua, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me. Jesus saves. The people are saying, oh, Lord, save. Jesus is saying, yes, I will save. Come to me. His name is full of significance. He's God. He has the authority to forgive sins. He is the Redeemer. Jesus, the only God-man. He is the only Savior of men. And as we think about this truth, we're reminded of Scripture's teaching that as fully man, Jesus is is singularly suitable to save and to be our high priest. He's the priest and the sacrifice, as Hebrews talks about him, Hebrews Chapter 2 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he doesn't give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, 
so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Do you need his aid in temptation? Do you need his aid for your soul? Can you save yourself? Can you be your own sacrifice? No. We need a substitute, and only a man like us could take our place. He had to be both man and God for his entire life. It can't be any other way. If we lose that truth, we lose the heart of the whole gospel. And if you turn to anything else as your hope for eternal safety, you're really denying the truth that Jesus alone can save you. There is no one else who can save you. But if you do turn to him, we we exalt him as God and man. Because even now in heaven, he's our intercessor. He's our great high priest who knows our frame. He intercedes with the Father on our behalf. He, He understands our weakness. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that that God did this, that God planned this, that Jesus obeyed. He is unique, the only one who could save us. But as one who who is truly unique, Jesus is right also to be exclusive and to, to demand worship and allegiance and faith. Because there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. He's right to say, believe. Believe in me. You can search far and wide. You can spend your whole life. You could spend multiple lifetimes looking for an alternate savior from your sin, someone who could make you right with God. But it's only Jesus who can make you well. Only God can make you right with God. Maybe you try to rest in your own works. Maybe you try to rest in something that you do or something you've done. Jesus alone deserves that trust and confidence because he is God and man. But we should also remember, as Jesus is fully God, how gracious he was to condescend to become a man. The word became flesh. The word who was there at the very beginning, by whom God created all things, that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is nothing in us that deserves this. Do we deserve to celebrate Christmas? that Christ came to be a man. We don't deserve that. It's only because God is full of loving kindness and grace that he sent Jesus to redeem men from sin. And maybe you hear people say, why God lets people go to hell? But that's the wrong question. We should ask why God allows anybody into heaven. Nobody deserves that. Christmas is a time for us to be humble, even as Christ was humble. And it's a time for us to be thankful for our salvation in Jesus Christ, even as Jesus did all the Father's will to accomplish redemption. 
He is the one who saves from sin. He is the the provider of salvation, the, the one who accomplished redemption, the one who rescues from darkness, and we should worship him. He deserves it. He's the provider of salvation. And even as the name Jesus indicates who will provide salvation, God's word is also clear in the lips of this angel that this name also indicates for us the certainty of salvation. He himself will save his people from their sins. Do you see that? She will bear a son, Matthew 1.21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this really speaks to both, you could say, the, the timing and the substance of what he came to do. There's, there's a focus on the ministry of Jesus. Maybe you wonder, why, when, we, when we're talking about Christmas, why do we talk about the cross so much? Well, it's because of this. He's going to save us from sins. He's going to die on a cross. He will save. It's certain. It's future. This verb, if you're thinking about it, it is future, like when the angel says she will bear a son. She's got to go through the whole pregnancy. She's got to have the child. It's going to happen in the future. The angel actually says you will call his name Jesus. It's in the future. But there's a kind of inevitability about it. There's a kind of promise in this, in this divine declaration about the future. Mary will deliver this child. What the angel is saying to Joseph is, although you're going to choose it of your own free will to name him Jesus, you will name him this. And so too, Jesus will save. He will save his people. He'll do it in the future, and he really will do it. There's no doubt about it. It's future, and it's certain to happen. And the truth for us here is that Jesus really did accomplish redemption when he came to earth. He really did it. There's nothing left to do. This speaks to the power of God's word, the the inevitability of his purpose, the undeniability of his word, the irresistibility of his intent. When God plans something, can anybody thwart that? God has never been thwarted by the actions of men, even by the weather that he sends. His plans have never been contradicted, even by the wiles of the devil. If you read a book like Job, it seems like the devil's purposes are being unfolded the whole book. But who's the bookend of the book? God is sovereign the whole time. Nothing, none of the calamities that came upon Job were outside of God's control. God always gets his way. He will never be denied. He will never be turned away. Do you know that? Nobody can even call God into question. Daniel said, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Daniel 4.35 But he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? I believe it's Hezekiah who's praying to the Lord in Second Chronicles Twenty. Oh Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. 
And just notice as we read the, the planning and the, the willing words. Ephesians chapter 1. Notice that what God plans and intends to do, He really does. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. This is this is a plan of redemption that God really accomplished. I came across a question in a book actually that we were studying with the teens in Christian Life Hour some time ago. Did Jesus accomplish his purpose in coming to earth? Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Did he succeed? Or did he fail? He really did it. And that's a great comfort, isn't it, to the hearts of Christians? That Jesus really did accomplish redemption. There is no payment for sin still to be made for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there is no condemnation. He will save, the angel said. And he did save. He does save. He really did the work. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath and to redeem those who turn from their sin and trust in him. So it's, it's future and it's inevitable, but he will save. And this is kind of the nature of his work. It's a rescue, isn't it? You've maybe seen a lot of rescues on the side of this road, side of the road this week. Maybe in the parking lot of a hotel from AAA. Who knows? Police, ambulances, whatever, pulling people out of the snow. Tow trucks. You ever had to have this? Remember my cousin one time. He was so far off the road they had to go back and get a longer cable. That's how bad the snow yanked him off the road. Nobody goes out in this weather thinking they're going to be the one who spins out, right? Who flips their car, who smashes into the side of the road, into the guardrail. Maybe you know that that terrible feeling of losing control of your vehicle vehicle in the snow. And it, it was occurring to me this week that it seems like most of our lives we can usually kind of get ourselves out of a jam 
Usually it's not so bad. Maybe not. Maybe you've experienced things that you really felt like you couldn't. But when your wheels are dug into the snow or the mud or the ice or you have a crash, you just need a tow truck. You just need an ambulance. You can't help yourself. You can't get yourself out of it. You need rescued. Of course, we, we could get into to much more, more serious and sad and graphic illustrations of, of fires or other kinds of accidents, the, the kinds of peril that we really can get into in this fallen world. But that's never, it's never going to approach the peril of sin, is it? Not only was Jesus the one who would provide salvation and who really did, his work was to deliver. It was to free, to rescue, to save. Like, very much like, like Moses, the shepherd who God prepared and helped to deliver hundreds of thousands of slaves from Egypt, maybe a million or more through a sea and then a desert, they needed delivered. They couldn't help themselves. They couldn't get out of it. Just like Moses, Jesus the shepherd delivers all who believe from eternal condemnation and the slavery of sin. He will save. What are we talking about? We'll talk about sin in a moment. But it's true, isn't it? All people are born slaves to sin. Even the youngest and cutest. The ones that seem the most innocent. Every single one but baby Jesus were born slaves of sin. Have you ever seen a child, perhaps your own if you have them, who wants nothing but his own will and his own way? He's just dominated. By sin. Children love themselves, don't they? Yes, in the big tantrum ways, maybe you see in the store, but also in all the little decisions of life to obey or not, to eat or not, to come or not, to stay put or not. It's all children. That's all of us. We're slaves. could even use the the phrase we are hell bent on our own way aren't we and we think we're right we came across that verse in proverbs there is a way that seems right to a man to a child to a teenager to a middle-aged to an old man and an old woman if we're never delivered from this we think we're right in it but what's the end of that way it's death. All the paths of sin, and there are lots of them, they lead to one destination, and that is eternal hellfire. Do you know that you need delivered from the way of death? You can't do it yourself. You won't do it yourself. Unless God is gracious to you. You need to call on his name. The story of the coming of Jesus really is a story of a promise that God delivers from death, the death that we are bringing on our own heads. Will you call on Jesus to save you from your sin? He's the only one who can. He will. 
He is the provider, and his provision is certain. This verse says, his name says, Jesus, he will save. But also the, the angel indicates to Joseph the appropriateness of this name because of the recipients of the salvation, who, who are the objects of this saving. He will save his people from their sins. And who would that be? As we've read the Old Testament, sometimes we forget. This is the Jewish Old Testament. This was the Jews' Bible. This is what Joseph and Mary grew up hearing in the synagogue, reading at church, you could say. It was their Bible. His own, his ethnic people to whom he belonged. That's what Moses said. God will bring one of your countrymen like me. John chapter 1 Verse 11, he came to his own things and his own people received him not. Jesus came to the Jews. If you turn over to Acts, I'll just read it. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Peter is standing before the, the Sanhedrin and he says, He is the one, the one in whose name this man was healed. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. But it's not just Peter who says this. Paul picks up on this exact same truth in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13. We could really look at much of this chapter, but Paul is in the synagogue of the Jews and he's preaching to the Jews in the synagogue Especially look at uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 23. From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And even in this passage, Paul proves that the Jews reject him, and that's why... They're turning to the Gentiles. Jesus came to save his own. He came to save the Jews. He's the Messiah of the Jews. But there are more than just the Jews who are his people, by God's grace. And that's what a lot of the rest of the New Testament's about. And that's what it bears out. And we praise God for that. Because it wasn't just his own ethnic people that he came to save. The Jews, the people group to whom he belonged, whom he loves, whom he will save. He turned to the Gentiles, the sheep from another fold, the people that the Father gave him, those that he received. And this really is carried in the lips of Jesus all throughout the book of John. John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. A few verses later, he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. He's praying to the Father in the upper room with the disciples. In John chapter 17, verse 2, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, 
and I have been glorified in them. He's consistently calling all of the people that are saved, those that God has given him, and it's Jews and Gentiles, and he speaks about those who will believe based on the word of his witnesses. Jesus came to save his people, Jews and Gentiles alike. Praise the Lord. He has opened up the way of salvation to the whole world. Jesus really does fulfill all the promises of God. In him, they are yes and amen, Paul says. What promises are we talking about? Well, the promise of salvation. You see this in the prayer of Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. There are many Old Testament references, but you get, you get a sense. Why don't, why don't we look there? Luke chapter 1. as he's prophesying, rather, Luke chapter 1, verse 68, you get a sense of the Jewish hope and expectation. Really, you could say how they read their Bibles and what they thought about when they thought about the Messiah. As Zechariah is prophesying. Luke chapter 1, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And he goes on and he's, prophesying with joy about his own son, John the Baptist. But really, this is, this is full of hope and joy about the Messiah. He's going to rescue us. Jesus really fulfills that promise for his people. And you see that just bubbling excitement in the lips of an Old Testament saint, Zacharias. And where are they getting this from? Certainly a place like Isaiah chapter 53 he was wounded for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chasing of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He is judged. He receives a stroke for us. So that he might justify the wicked. This is the hope of God's people. There is a promise of salvation. Of being able to be right with God and God's people 
hope and that promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, the promise of salvation, the promise of blessing to the nations that we referred to. Maybe when you think of blessing to the the nations of the earth, you think of a man like Joseph. He blessed the known world by having grain for the nations, didn't he? Solomon blessed the nations when he promoted the worship of God by his influence. He had great influence over the nations, and nations are coming to Jerusalem, and they're seeing the wisdom of God. Daniel, he wasn't a king, but he was in the king's courts, and he spread the knowledge of God to Babylon and to Medo-Persia when God used him to proclaim the glory of the Lord throughout those empires by the lips of those pagan kings. These men were sources of great blessing to the nations by by food, by the knowledge of God, but their influence pales in comparison to the blessing that Jesus brought to the nations. Jesus' Jesus' blessing stands like a monument above all the others. The blessing that man can be right with God, that man can be forgiven of sins. How could God forgive sins when he has to judge sin? Except Jesus Christ. Man can have a new heart inclined to the will of God. Man can have eternal life with God. How is all of this possible? For anyone who will believe? It's because God promised these things. God had the plan. God made the plan. And Jesus did the work. Jesus makes men right with God. Jesus secures the promise of redemption and forgiveness of sins and restoration. Jesus proved for all men to see that the promises of God are sure and he will never let his people down. God will not lie to you. He will save his people from their sins. That should fill us with wonder. That should fill us with hope. I've been thinking a lot about Martin Luther's hymn this morning. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. We cannot match the devil, the enemy of our soul. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled, isn't it, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What word? The word that became flesh. That word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. No thanks to those devils. 
The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That word abides, and He is on our side. That should fill us with wonder that God would save anyone, that he would promise to save anyone at all, that God would promise to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth, and then that God would send the Messiah of the Jews to keep that promise to them, but then that God would open it up to all of us so that we could be his people. And then he carries us through life he makes us his own. It's a marvel, isn't it? That we can be his people. We're far off. We're estranged. All of us in this room go in that category. We're Gentiles. We didn't, we didn't have any of the promises of God, but God opened it up to us. We should worship him. He himself will save his people from their sins. From their sins. That's the last phrase. And you really get a, a sense increasingly uh, of the nature of what Jesus came to do. It's a removal, isn't it? From their sins. From what's loaded in, what's connected to our sin. Jesus saves from guilt before the law, doesn't he? He saves us from the shame of our sin, from the fear of our judgment, when you think about sin, at the very beginning, you see, you see guilt and shame and fear right away. Adam and Eve sinned. They were, they were guilty of breaking the one rule that they had in the garden. They were condemned before the law. They were transgressors of the law. They were guilty. But what do they do right away? Genesis 3, 7. After breaking the law, they're guilty. They cover themselves. They were, when they were innocent, they were naked and unashamed. But as soon as they sin, all of a sudden they're ashamed. Sin brings shame. They hide from God. And then what does Adam say to God? I heard you walking through the garden and I was afraid. Sin brings fear. All because of sin. Adam and Eve were no longer, they were no longer innocent. They weren't honorable with God. They weren't secure and you could almost say powerful as kings of creation. Sin disrupted all of that. It disrupted their relationship with God to make them guilty and filthy and weak. Jesus saves from those things. The atonement that he makes fixes our relationship with God. We don't fear God anymore. We're not, we don't have to, to hide from God anymore. We're not guilty before God anymore. But you can also say it another way. Jesus saves from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And his salvation is so good, eventually he's going to save us from the presence of sin. We're not there yet, but he will. Sin is powerful, isn't it? It enslaves people. It holds them in its power. People don't come to the light, not because of some disability, but because they're not inclined to. They don't want to come to the light. They hate the light. We can't because we don't and we won't. That's how powerful sin is. It's enslaving. 
And sin brings a penalty. Even one sin against an eternal God deserves eternal punishment. I heard my nephew say recently uh, the, the, the verse in James that if any man offends in one way, he's guilty of the whole. My nephew said, that's not fair. It's true. There's something dawning on him. One sin against an eternal God, an eternal God, warrants an eternity of suffering in hell. And have you sinned just once? Has anybody sinned just once? Can you even make that argument? Well, it was just one. Maybe I could haggle with God over the price. No. Our lives are full of sin. And sin infects our whole being. We are totally depraved. God created everything good and without sin. But after the fall, because of sin, we have a sin nature, a sinful flesh. Our flesh cannot submit to the law of God. Indeed, it will not. It will, cannot be redeemed. We need new bodies God makes us new when he gives us new life, but we have to wait until we die to be totally free from our sin. None of us is going to be perfect before we get to heaven. But Jesus saves us from all this. The power and the penalty and eventually the presence. We have the promise of full restoration. He saves from sin's power so that we're no longer slaves to sin when God gives us new life. We don't have to obey sin. Don't present your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God and your members as instruments of righteousness to him, Paul says. God gives us a new heart to obey him, new desires, new inclinations. We're not under sin's power anymore. Praise the Lord if you're in Christ. But Jesus rescues people from sin's penalty. He paid the penalty in full. How? Because he is the eternal son of God. He's the perfect substitute. For those who believe in him, there is no condemnation. It is paid in full. It brought your ledger all the way to zero and you got all of his righteousness. You have everything that you need in Jesus Christ. He rescues from sin's penalty, and he promises to rescue from sin's presence. He is guaranteed by his own death and resurrection, a future bodily resurrection from the dead, hasn't he? The restoration of all things, and creation groans for this. And in hope that the one who subjected it to this futility, only God can release us from this, and he will because of Christ. Jesus came to earth as the God-man, not to save us to sin, but to save us from sin. He, he came to take us from sin and to take sin from us. For the grace of God has appeared, Paul writes to Titus, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, from every lawless deed, 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. God's salvation that he provided in Jesus, it's spiritual and it's eternal. It's, it's, a, it's a salvation of body and soul forever. It's essentially a removal from sin. Sin is what we are, it's who we are, it's what we do. But this baby came and he was named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And who knows what all Joseph thought about that. You know, when we look back, hindsight is probably more than 2020 in this case. We know a lot more than Joseph did at that moment. He's excited. This is his first child. Maybe if he thought about it, you know, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Will my child have to shed his blood to save me from my sin? We know that now. This is a gift. It's their sins, Matthew says. The angel said. It's really is, it's, it's against what we do. We're sinful. We're full of it. We're inclined toward our own way. We're inclined away from God. It's, it's like if all of this beauty and light is out here, we're just shriveled it up, up in on ourselves in, in ugliness, in our sin. And that's why it's such a gift, because saving from sin is opposite of the whole course of our lives. It's something we couldn't do for ourselves, something we wouldn't do. And that's why this name is so fitting. Name him Jesus, for he himself will save his people from their sins. In closing, I just want to turn to Philippians chapter 2. You can turn there if you like, or you can just listen. It's because of this truth and more that we're here to worship the Lord together this morning and that I trust you will worship the Lord because he's worthy of everything we can give and much more. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we're learning how we should live because this really is true of Christ. This is what he did who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. How's that for a future inevitability? Whether you want to or not, whether you did it in this life or not, you will bow in faith or in fear. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He deserves this name. It's appropriate to him. And he's going to get a lot of glory for it. Because he did everything he came to do. He did all the Father's will. And when you read the book of Revelation, like we were reminded at the end of our Christmas program last night, last Sunday, everyone everywhere is going to know 
how much praise he deserves. And does it, does it make your, your spine tingle to think about everyone just crying out, worthy is the Lamb to receive honor and glory and riches and power and wisdom and blessing forever? Because he rescues from sin. So flee from sin and worship the Lord today. Let's pray. Our Father, as we think about your great Son, Jesus Christ, and Lord Jesus, as we read about you and celebrate your coming today, we realize that we have revelation and experience, personal acquaintance, if we're in Christ, with things into which angels have been just dying to look for centuries, for millennia. And even though now they see more than they ever have, they don't experience this. Father, we are in a uniquely humble but really privileged place as your human creatures to be saved by your grace, to experience redemption, and to, to be able to celebrate that Christ came in human flesh. He didn't come as an angel. He didn't come as any other creature. You sent him as a man. And you named him Jesus. Yahweh saves because he is Yahweh. And he did save. And he will save any who call on his name. I pray if there's anyone here who has not done that, that they would call on the name of Jesus for salvation because there is salvation and no one else. And Lord, even as it was inevitable that he would be named this and that he really did accomplish your plan, it is also inevitable that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord Jesus because you are and you're alive in heaven today. I pray that you would be honored by what we think and say today about you. But Lord, I pray that many would come to confess you as their Savior, because you will save. You have saved, and we rejoice in your name today. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for coming to save us from sins. I pray that that message would be on our lips and in our hearts today to the praise of your glorious grace, God. Thank you. We pray this in Christ's name.